Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Despite an unwritten rule that authors shouldn't install writers as characters in their work, in recent times a surfeit of writers as protagonists have appeared. Irishman John Boyne, author of A Ladder to the Sky, Pulitzer Prize winner Andrew Sean Greer, who wrote Less, Chilean Carla Guelfenbein, author of In the Distance with You, and Ockham New Zealand Book Awards long-listed Anne Kennedy, author of The Ice Shelf, come together to discuss writing a story and what's behind this very particular trend. We hope you enjoy it. So please, uh, please join me in welcoming Andrew, Carla and John. And me. <laughs> and Anne. And Anne. Yeah, I'll come to that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, okay, to, just, just sort of a bit more about this topic, this strange topic, the um, um, writer as protagonist. So in some quarters there's an unwritten rule, that's where this title comes from for this session, that, um, that the fiction writer who's sort of making something new after all shouldn't create a protagonist who's a writer like them. Um, it's potentially inward-looking, um, perhaps even sort of incestuous, uh, perhaps an unhealthy sort of preoccupation with the self. Um, perhaps the writer feasting on their own brains might end up with some terrible strain of literary mad cow disease. <laughs> and yet, um, there's a brilliant theme of writers writing writers that goes before us, um, and I'll just list a few of them. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, The World According to Garp, which we just discussed briefly, Living in the Maniatoto, Amulet, Death in Venice, Americana, the list goes on, but it's still a relatively rare phenomenon. So in this session, we'll look at um, why the protagonist writer might be considered sort of dodgy, but also about what could be unearthed by this transaction what might the connection between author and character allow in the fiction? So because um, uh, we're all, our novels are all very different, and because there are so many of us here on the stage, I think it would be useful for me to give a really brief summary, like a sort of thumbnail of each book, um, uh, without blowing the gaff of the books. Um, no doubt we'll learn more about them as we, um, as we discuss. But to start, First of all, Less by Andrew um, uh, concerns a failed novelist, Arthur Less, who's knocking 50, who avoids the wedding of a lost love by instead accepting a trail of low-level book events that take him around the world and in the process bring him close up and uncomfortable with his demons. In the Distance with You by Carla, is a literary mystery about three characters, one a poet, whose lives are intertwined via a famous author, Vera Sigal, who's now 80 and in hospital, having fallen down the stairs, or was she pushed? So this character is inspired by the famous Brazilian writer, Clarice Lispector. Um, a Ladder to the Sky by John. Uh, is about a young writer, Morris Swift, who ingratiates himself with a lonely, aged writer in Berlin, 
and realizes that stealing stories can be a thing. And Morris's life gets suitably complicated. There's a meta interlude involving Gore Vidal, which I hope we'll hear a bit more about. And lastly, the ice shelf, which is by me. I'm a participating chair, so I get to chime in sometimes. Um, so my recent novel, The Ice Shelf, which came out from VUP, um, is about the hapless writer Janice, uh, who on the eve of going to Antarctica on a writing fellowship, tows her fridge around Wellington trying to get someone to look after it for her while she's away, and at the same time trawling through her troubled past. So that's us. That's our books. Um, okay. I have a quote from, um, from Andrew's book, Less. Um, what does one ever ask an author except how? And the answer, as Les knows, is beats me. So if we were going to start there, we could all go home now. Um, so I won't start with that question. But my first question um, is, um, did your character have to be a writer? So let's start with Andrew seeing I oh. took the liberty of quoting your book. Great. Did your character have to be a writer? Um, I, I really tried to go any other possible way I could. I, I think it's common for, for writers to make a main character like a painter instead or something, or a photographer. Um, oh, I did that in another book. I created a photographer who just never took photographs somehow throughout the whole book, which I, <laughs> I got wrong. I'm not good at other careers. So I... Um, I think mostly in books, I make these poor decisions because I have no other way to get into it. And this one, he, it, it, he had to be a writer because I somehow was writing a book where I sat down and I thought, what's the most humiliating thing that ever happened to me? And once you run out of high school memories, <laughs> you go to writer's events <laughs> overseas. <laughs> Okay. Like this, but I think I yeah. think a lot of times writers, um, <laughs> um, it's their way in. You know, I I um, I I you look at Philip Roth, who like his first two Zuckerman books are very much about a writer's life, and then he has a a, a slew of other Zuckerman books that are not about that. They're just Nathan Zuckerman is his way to get into another person's story entirely, and it yep. goes into another person's consciousness. Yeah. And it's whatever way the writer. It's so fun to watch to see that he that was the way Philip Roth got to that story. That mm. he had to go in through the writer's mind somehow. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I thought of Roth uh, with this in mind. Um, that the, later the the writer became a sort of frame for the story, which is not about a writer. Um, but but your your book is about a writer, and, and so is yours, Carla. So, yeah. you actually, you have two writers. Yeah, I have so two writers. Actually, I mean, they have to be writers, but not because they have to be writers, they have to be themselves. And it happened that they were writers. Uh, because, as you, as you mentioned, the whole thing started with the Clay Spectre. Right, and Clarice Spector, she's a writer I've been following since I was 16. And when I started to follow her, she was a sort of cult writer. Nobody knew about it. And you would arrive to any bookshop and you would ask for Clarice Spector. And there were always one bookseller who would say, Wow, you know Clarice Spector. And we were part of it, you know, we were part of this special group that knew Clarice Spector. And her writing really captivated me since I was very young. And, I, and she was the one who made it to be a writer at the end. And a few years ago, someone did his, 
her biography, right, who was Ben Moser, an American. Yeah. Uh, and when I read the biography, I found out for the first time after, you know, 30 years that her life, her, the way she, come, she came to Brazil was exactly the same way as my family came to Chile, you know, from, from Ukraine, exactly at the same time, from the same region, uh, for the same reason, escaping from the pogroms. And uh, she was raised as a, as a Brazilian instead of being raised as a Jew, the same that happened to my family. And suddenly, you know, my hero was me. And uh, so, and other thing which was important in this thing is that my mother died when I was very young, when I was 17. I couldn't ask her anything about her, her, her background. And my father had an early Alzheimer's, so I couldn't ask her neither when I wanted to ask, you know, before you don't want to know when you're 17, 16. You don't want to know anything. You, want, you are looking the future. But when I wanted to look back, uh, I didn't have the story, so I stole her story. I stole her life, and I made it my story. For me, as a sort of existential well-being, and as well as for my daughter and son. So it did, they are writers because, well, because of this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. John. Uh, well, good afternoon. Um, yeah, it, it, it had to be writers from the start because uh, the first third of the book is really kind of inspired by something that happened to me in my life. And the first third of the book takes place with a, a young, charming, incredibly handsome young writer and a, <laughs> and a miserable, lonely, um, depressing, aging writer. Um, I'm the latter, not the former. <laughs> and uh, um, and, and it, it's, it was, it was a, about this idea of uh, somebody, somebody without self-belief in a way who needs to attach themselves to a more successful, sort of powerful, um, more powerful person than them in, the, in this writing industry um, and, and kind of steal their life and steal their story and try to use them to get introductions to all the people that mattered. So, uh, and that was, uh, I had a little event like that um, in my life a couple of years ago and I, I drew from that in the first third. But also I hadn't really written about writers before and um, I, I mean a lot of people really do I think and um, I wanted to because I've been publishing for 20 years and like anybody in any job for any length of time, you see things, you hear things, you've got interesting many like anecdotes and funny anecdotes, hopefully. And, um, and I just thought, you know, I would like to kind of just investigate my own industry, even though I feel it could be any other industry. It doesn't actually have to be writing necessarily, but I, I wanted to, to write about that. Yeah, but, but also you know that industry. Um, yeah. I, I was uh, reminded of an, an essay by the New Zealand novelist Damien Wilkins called Opening the Bag, and he describes being uh, in a, a creative writing class run by Stanley Elkin, and one of the other students had written a story um, about a medical sort of travelling salesman, and, and Stanley Elkin said, like, but what's in his bag? And the student sort of couldn't answer that properly, like not in detail. And so, and Stanley Elkin was like, "This is terrible because you don't know your character unless you know sort of what's in their bag and everything about them." And I think as a as a writer, we know what's in their bag, don't we? <laughs> we we know what what a writer's life is like. So in a sense, we're writing the known, even even though it might sort of lead to the unknown. Had any of us ever written about a writer before? 
Yeah. I wrote briefly in The Heart's Invisible Furies that the mother of um, the narrator is a, is a writer, Maud Avery, but she's only in one chapter. But other than that, I don't think I really have. I don't think I have. I haven't either. But I've always liked reading books about writers. You yeah, know, me too. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, like me we, too. You mentioned The World According to yeah. Garp. Yes. And true. my favourite writer growing up as a teenager and, and even now to today is John Irving. And um, he writes so much about writers mm. and bears and wrestling. And yeah. um, wrestling bearers <laughs> who write are his particular um, thing. But um, yeah. And yeah. I, I guess that you like it because it is what you know, and we like to, yeah. to read about those things. Yeah. So even, even though our, our novels are all very different, I think there's one common theme, uh, and that is um, ambition. Ambition. <laughs> <laughs> They're all, the, each character will, um, is sort of driven by an ambition for success. Um, but also sort of courting the, the sort of dark cousin of that, which is um, irrelevance. So it seems that, that that's going on in all the novels. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, is that how did, um, are you aware of that in your novels? Or, and and uh, do you want to sort of elaborate on it? Mm. Ambition. I don't have to go first. No, you don't I have to go, go first. first. Yeah. We can go, go the other way. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, oh. must, we must all remember yeah. what it was like to be um, at that point before publication, say when we were young and ambitious and wondering whether this was going to happen or not. Because I think every young writer, you, you can feel confident that you're getting better as a writer. But I've always thought that there is an element of luck as well, you know, um, it's, you know, a lot of it is talent, but some of it is luck, just your book, finding the right agent or the right editor or the right media person and it take getting off. And um, I can remember sort of being 25 and thinking, I wish I could look forward sort of 10, 20 years and find out, did it, did it ever work out or am I, am I doing something else with my life? So it, when you're writing about ambition, you, you, we all know what that ambition is like, I guess. Yeah, it's true. No, I was thinking that in the case of my character, she's just the opposite. Uh, and, and there's something tricky there, you know, because I did it on purpose. She's a woman, and uh, she's a very well-known writer, like Clarice Spector. And uh, as Clarice Spector, she lives very by herself, you know. She doesn't give interviews, and, and uh, she's very, you know, private. And uh, I did it in because of that, because she was like that, but as well, you know, because ambitious is something very special when it comes to women. You are, we, are no, we are not allowed to be ambitious, you know. A, a man, a, an ambitious man is what's supposed to be, you know. He has to go for the board, to work, to get things and conquer. And, and an ambitious woman is a bit sort of, in my generation, in the following generation, no, it, it's a bit ugly, you know, you have to be sort of waiting, you know, for, for things to happen to you, you know, and uh, so in that way, I, I, I play with that, with this character, yeah. I made her like that, but in a very, very powerful way, because actually she's the boss, mm. I mean, in that yeah. waiting uh, attitude she has of no apparent ambition, um, she's, she's in charge. Of everything, yeah, yeah. which is a way of uh, being a woman. But well. perhaps ambition underneath, but she wears a, um, a sort of gendered mask of appearing not to not to be ambitious. But I was also also thinking about She's the ambitious. character Horatio. Mm. 
Oh, well, yes. yeah, that, that's a man. Yes. That's a yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, there is this... Um, Horacio is, is a poet who is very well known. He's got all these prizes, which is based a bit in quite a few poets I know from Chile, you know, that they are very sort of flamboyant and very sort of... <laughs> and, uh, and you never know where this... Actually, whether his talent is his or it's uh, hers. And that's the whole thing, you know. And the funny thing, which was pointed out today by, by this very important radio broadcaster woman you have, which is called, you, you must know, she's beautiful, uh, short hair. They're all beautiful Kim with Hill. short hair. They are oh. all beautiful. Kim, but, Hill? Huh? Kim Hill. Yes, Kim. Right. Yes, yes. at the hair, did it? Yeah, she cuts <laughs> it herself. I love her. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> she said, because... You know the biography of Clarice Spector is Ben Moser, and he's do, he did now Susan Sontag's. Yeah. And amazing because he says that actually Susan Sontag wrote the book of his ex-husband oh, yes. about mm. uh, Freud. So, you know, I, I, I did that for in my book and later, mm. you know, well, there's all these things about literature, which is they are so beautiful, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Okay. They are all yeah. How do you feel about um, women and ambition is yours character? Uh, Along the yeah. same line. No, my, my character is hugely ambitious, but not very successful, <laughs> and um, which is a terrible combination, um, and is just completely twisted by it, and that's really the sort of drive <coughs> of the whole book. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, let, let's let's talk about um, whether you have ever been confused with your with your your writer character. I could start, because yeah. my cover looks like that, and I have a blue suit that's very similar. This jacket is pretty much like Oh, that. I guess oh, so. Yeah. I'm, yeah. But you I'm, are upright, so I, I it's am. a bit different. Yeah. I'm not blonde. That's what I keep pointing out to people. And I'm not 50 yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, all the time. But I think it's, it's common in interviews for, people, for, for journalists oh, yeah. to ask you how much of this is autobiographical for any book. And... So I'm not asking you that. Good. I'm asking you, have That's you been asked, you. and and how you deal with it? Well, how I you do that? I try, to say, I try to. I would never say aloud. That's the least interesting thing we could talk about in this book. I worked so hard to make it like a novel, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and. Or, well, that's interesting. That's sort of what I'm interested to hear. Like the, yeah. Sort of creating authorial distance. So, well, and yeah. he became someone else, although clearly so many things are, are, are stolen from my life. Also because I was at a point of personal failure where I thought no one was ever going to read what I was writing, which gives you total freedom, you know, <laughs> and then, then you're across the other side of the world and yeah. people are reading it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what I would... I started to tell people was like, you know... It's like, here's the Frankenstein quote, um, or oh, a different one. Um, you know, if the Frankenstein's monster like, comes lumbering into the room, the first question you ask is not like, is that hand from the same guy as the foot? You know, like what you're thinking is, oh my God, it's a monster walking into the room. And I'm hoping the novel comes across as a, the monster, you know, like you like read it as a novel first and only much later. Um, would you be like, well, I wonder which part is, mm. is real. But you'll never know because yeah. I don't remember either. Okay. You know, <laughs> my memories have become very confused with what I, the, the, the embellishments here. So okay. they're kind of lost. That's interesting. So it sort of gets overlaid by what you've done. Well, in, in the way you um, lie at the pub to your friends, you know, a little bit. 
Hmm. You don't, I'm sure. No, you I don't. don't. I don't go to the pub. But John yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any friends. <laughs> so, we heard learned about that last night. <laughs> um, by the way, there's a Frankenstein uh, connection in, in Les and in the ice shelf, just have to say. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, um, have we finished that question? I don't know. Do, do you have anything more to say about that uh, one? About that one? <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I was trying to find my cover because I don't have my book. And mm. if you Google it in the distance with you, you will find this beautiful lady. Yeah. The cover, mm. you know. And, uh, of course, it's not me. Nobody has never, ever confused me with her. But today, when I was trying to find, to look a, a piece for, to read, uh, there is a description of her done by, Oras, by by one of the characters when she's older. And, uh, you know, older, what is supposed to be beautiful when she was younger, when she gets older, it, can, it comes a bit sort of exaggerated, you know, big things, big nose, big my mouth and I found that it was me you know so I was a bit sort of <laughs> depressed and I'm not going to read that mm. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I kind of um, wish I looked yes. like um, the guy in the front of my book you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, oh yeah, yeah. I, know. yeah. I wish I looked like I don't know why <laughs> I don't get invited to the photo shoots <laughs> <laughs> I do know why I don't get invited to the photo shoots yeah. um, I've, I've, what was the original question? <laughs> I, I can't remember. On that note, let's yeah. um, let's do some read, some really short readings. So um, I don't want to go last. So um, let's let's go in alphabetical order. Is that? I've Just ordered, that. No, 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 no. You go first. I'll go next. Then. Then you too. Okay. okay. Yeah. I just I want to be in the middle. <laughs> that sounds fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read a, 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 a tiny piece from the beginning where he's in New York City. Cool. It's just a paragraph. Great. Yep. New York City is a city of 8 million people, approximately 7 million of whom will be furious when they hear you were in town and didn't meet them for an expensive dinner. 5 million furious you didn't visit their new baby. 3 million furious you didn't see their new show. One million furious you didn't call for sex, but only five actually available to meet you. It is completely reasonable to call none of them. You could instead sneak off to a terrible, treacly Broadway show that you will never admit you paid $200 to see. And this is what Les does on his first night, eating a hot dog dinner to make up for the extravagance. You cannot call it a guilty pleasure when the lights go down and the curtain goes up, when the adolescent heart begins to beat along with the orchestra, not when you feel no guilt. And he feels none. He feels only the shiver of delight when there is nobody around to judge you. It is a bad musical, but like a bad lay, a bad musical can do its job perfectly well. <laughs> By the end, Arthur Les is in tears, sobbing in his seat, and he thinks he has been sobbing quietly until the lights come up, and the woman seated beside him turns and says, Honey, I don't know what happened in your life, but I am so, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she gives him a lilac-scented embrace. Nothing happened to me, he wants to say to her. Nothing happened to me. I'm just a homosexual at a Broadway show. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit from the ice shelf. Um, uh, when Janice is quite sort of well into it, and Janice um, has met somebody... Uh, and ended up sort of at their house. She's looking for somewhere to stay the night, basically. So she's visited someone's flat, and there's a few other people there. Um, I know, says Rose. 
She kneels up on the couch and furrows down behind it, messing with the thick curtains. She holds up a bottle of vodka like a trophy. Cocktails. Rose and Holly touch knuckles and even flocks raises a smile. I'm not complaining either. We all slog back uphill to the kitchen. Rose flicks on the light and screws herself into a low cupboard. When she reappears, her blonde dreads are cobwebby, like a cat that's been under the house. And she's holding a blender. Its crazed plastic jug twinkles beautifully. Eric appears again, very stoned, and is informed of the cocktail decision. Without hesitation, he hefts himself up on the bench. The countertop creaks as he wobbles along it, strangely light on his feet, opening all the high cupboards, saying, this could go in a cocktail. Now, this could definitely go in a cocktail. He tells everyone to watch out, and we stand aside respectfully as cans rain down and make gouges in the floor. I think I should probably leave, but I need a place to sleep. I think about my fridge on its own down by the bus shelter, and I hope it's okay. I've worked out that there's no way Eric will be taking it on board. Rose stations herself at the bench to cram bananas, raisins, crackers, and a can of peaches into the blender. Boxes of allspice are passed around and sniffed like a drug. Holly has a go in the blender, and we all encourage her like soccer hooligans. Even me, go Holly, go Holly. Holly reaches willy-nilly for bottles and packets, pours them all into the blender. When she turns it on, there's an almighty eruption and grey matter sprays powerfully all over the kitchen. After the shrieking and cowering, Holly dangles the power plug in her hand and informs us in careful drunk talk that this is the consequence of having no lid on the blender. Her observation is greeted with silence and then more hysterics. It is Phlox's idea that we waste not, want not, and she leans over and attaches her mouth to the window. Eric says to all and sundry, would you care to join me for a cocktail? The girls yahoo. Who am I quoting? asks Eric. Don't give a fuck, says Rose. No, go on, who am I quoting? Would you care to join me for a cocktail? Eric eyes me while licking his coat sleeve in an intimate way for some reason. I know sex is off the menu, but I don't give a fuck. We all proceed to lick the mixture from the table, the chairs, the floor. Eric climbs back on the bench and licks the ceiling, saying periodically, can I interest you in a cocktail? I feel myself getting fairly drunk as my tongue rasps over rough surfaces. Eventually, we finish the kitchen and are drinking cocktails from our marmot gyres again. And I knock back a couple, partly because they're quite substantial with their bananas and canned beans, and I'm quite hungry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be bartending after this talk. Um, this is just a, <clears throat> a short scene that takes place at uh, Gore Vidal's house on the Amalfi Coast. Over dinner, the discussion turned to Morris's novel. Gore had avoided making any direct reference to it all afternoon, but Howard, who had returned home in disarray, having had his wallet stolen in a cafe, asked when it would be published. Oh, but it's already out, said Dash, delighted that the conversation was turning to his protege at last, which was far more appealing to him than the lecture on the Emperor Galba that Gore had been delivering for 40 minutes. 
The British edition, that is, and some of the European ones. But the Americans don't publish until September. That's where you come in, Gore. Me, asked Gore, lifting a prawn from his plate and shelling it in a trio of expert movements. What have I got to do with anything? We thought you might offer an endorsement. You don't mind our asking, do you? We being Morris and I. Dash, please, said Morris, doing his best to look uncomfortable, but proving himself an imperfect actor. Is that what you hoped for, Morris? asked Gore, turning to the boy and looking him directly in the eye. Did you hope that I might endorse your novel? Actually, I'd prefer if you didn't, he replied. Really, said Gore, surprised by the remark. May I ask why? Because I wouldn't want you to think that's the only reason I came here tonight. When Dash suggested you might host us for dinner, I knew I would cancel anything on my calendar in order to attend. I've been an admirer of yours for many years, and the opportunity to meet you in person was one that was too good to pass up. But I wouldn't want you to think that I came here only to exploit your good nature. Gore couldn't help but laugh at the suggestion. Many outrageous things had been said about him over the years, thousands of unkind comments, but no one had ever had the bad manners to accuse him of having a good nature. <laughs> okay. Sorry, uh, I'm coming from so far away and uh, I didn't bring any books. So I'm reading, kindly understand me the PDF. So I'm going to read from here, okay? Um, this is Daniel, one of the characters. Somewhere on the planet, there was someone responsible for your death. That certainty grew stronger as each day passed, bludgeoning my conscience, making itself unbearable. But who? Why? I never imagined the answer might be so close that I could turn around and meet myself. I remember the moment when I ran across my, the neighborhood vagrant, right after I bought the bread for our breakfast. His eyes at once wandered at once wounded and menacing, came to rest on me. I quickened my pace while the jumbled mass of people around me, all of them in raincoats, walked past and disappeared into the morning fog. A group of kids crossed the avenue. Their innocence increased the agitation that meeting the bum had produced in me. I couldn't know what I would know a few minutes later. I couldn't know what had happened to you during the night, or maybe at dawn. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about um, favorite writer characters from fiction. So um, were people inspired by reading other novels with writer protagonists? I definitely read the Beck books by Updike um, when I reread and reread them because I thought I, they probably aren't widely read anymore. And that's part of why I read them because I could steal from them. <laughs> <laughs> no one would know until now. Yeah, 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 because I love. You should be in his novel. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Look what he did to Gorby Doll. <laughs> Uh, actually, to write this book, as I said, my, my, my big preparation wasn't that my character was a writer. What I wanted this time, which is, was something, I didn't realize it was the first time I was writing about a writer, but I knew that it was the first time that I had a crime. Uh, 
And so what I did is to read a lot of mystery novels that I've never, ever done in my life. I don't like even mystery films, you know? I mean, when there is a death, I just switch, you know? I mean, you don't, I don't want to know. So it was a whole thing, you know, to get into this thing and, and trying to find the mechanisms, how it worked, which at the end, you know, I didn't, I just drop everything and at the end, I don't think it's a mystery uh, uh, a novel, but uh, that was my preoccupation, you know, to make a mystery mm. novel. Okay. Mm. Uh, I would say I, I wasn't so much inspired by writers writing about writing as um, the talented Mr. Ripley, that, oh, well. yeah. that sequence of five yeah. books, which I love. You mystery know, and uh, writers. Yeah, <laughs> one of my absolute favorite sequence of books in literature. And what I love about um, talented Mr. Ripley is that even though Tom Ripley is the is in theory like the villain of the piece, you're kind of on his side, you know, a lot of the time. You don't want him to get caught, and uh, you want to see how bad he can get. You know, he's the ultimate sort of anti-hero. And I was trying to kind of go for that that idea of somebody who you wouldn't want really to be in your life. You wouldn't want them to be your friend, but. Um, in that sort of Hannibal Lecter way, you, just, you still just want to keep, you want Hannibal to keep eating people, you know, and um, <laughs> as many as possible. It makes it more fun. So I was thinking, uh, but certainly the Tom Ripley books would, would have been at the, the top of my, at the front of my mind. Yeah, okay. Right. I have a question, maybe it's probably on your list, but which is... Well, you can save me the trouble. But, um, yeah, go ahead. Which is just like that the theme of this being the, the un, unwritten rule, like, were, was, were, was anyone scared or have apprehensive about writing about a writer? Because there's some sense we're not supposed to do that. Well, I, I was nervous yeah. about the fact that I did actually base them on somebody, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, in that first section. Yeah, let's so. talk about that. Um, I thought you sort of uh, kind of started off with that, that you sort of yeah. felt like, oh, I shouldn't do this, and, and but you did anyway. I mean, because um, I was thinking about it, but think, think about why I was certainly, I think I was told never to write about a writer. Yeah, no, we, no, we all are. I, I felt I felt the same, I shouldn't do this. I started writing this character and thought, no, no, I must stop. I mustn't do it, but she was. it was too late. She was just there. Well, why do they think you... They tell you that. Why do they? Well, I don't know. They, I don't, I don't know. What, they, maybe the they're wrong. What's the difference between writing about a writer yeah, and writing about a, a doctor yeah. or a well, soldier? Difference. Or a yeah. Well, because I don't we think might it's get a, disease. Yeah, I, I, I don't feel that, you know, forbiddenness, forbiddenness, mm. or how do, I don't know, how do you pronounce mm. uh, about writing about writers. What I was interested about, once I got into it, is to be, to, to, to be able to get into some... Um, uh, grasping of how the ideas came to be, yeah. and that's part of the book, you know, that's in the book. That's, I mean, because there's these two characters, you know, this poet, which is, we don't know whether he's actually as good as he thinks he is, and the world thinks he is, and this woman that nobody knows very much, but we know she's very good, and how these two mental processes work, you know, and how actually genius comes to be. Something I do not do, for instance, in the novel is write with the words of the genius women, because I'm not a genius, so I, that would be oof, impossible. So I always put someone else to talk for her. But through her, I try to grasp why there is something that you put this word with that word and that word, and it just slides, you know? And, and if you put it in another way, or you put one more word, it's just dark. 
And that's something I was very interested in the process. And I didn't feel any bad about it. I mean, I think it's perfectly okay to explore that. And even I didn't get any answer, of course, I had the opportunity to think about it, you know, and, and to make others think about it as well when they read the book. Yeah, yeah. So I, that process, I loved it. Yeah, and, uh, that's wonderful. Oh. Yeah. But I, but I think that's sort of the kind of dangerous element that, um, that we're talking about and that this panel, this panel is sort of based on um, <clears throat> is, that, is the sort of confusion with, with the self. Um, so, so, John, perhaps you could talk about uh, that, you know, the impetus for this was yourself. But d tell us about the sort of imaginative leap that, um, that you obviously took because this, this is a very different novel from your life. Uh, well, I, I think once I passed the first third of the novel, uh, I was willing to kind of let it go in any direction that it wanted. But the, the first third wasn't so much to me about the central character, Morris, who's the kind of the bad guy, so to speak. It was more about Eric, the, the older guy, because I was asking myself in my life why, um, why I had needed uh, somebody to kind of flatter me. Why did I, what was missing in my life that somebody could kind of manipulate me quite so quite so well, quite so thoroughly. And uh, in a way, I, I'm, in, in doing that, you know, he doesn't come across as a very sympathetic figure, the, that early narrator. And if he's slightly based on my own actions, then I'm not a very sympathetic figure in it as such, because uh, he also manipulates the, 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 the Morris character. So for me, always writing has been about trying to trying to understand things, trying to understand, certainly the last three books I've written, the previous two set in Ireland, have been about trying to understand my own life and how I've um, developed as a human being and the, any issues, any problems I have in my life, where did they come from? And using fiction to do that, which I, I don't know about you guys, but in the early part of my career, I, I didn't write anything personal at all. And it's only as I've got a little bit older and I guess felt more confidence in myself as a writer that I have felt able to do that and maybe the, the result of that is being able to write about a writer. I think I have the same answer. I was completely not autobiographical until, until, until this book, yeah. I think. Yeah. And autobiographical, why did I even say that? But yeah, going into the same territory because I know it's not me. So, mm. and I'm not scared of as much self-indulgence. I think I'm out of that, mm. that realm. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, for me, it was the, the opposite. I think my early work was very autobiographical and also about my sort of family history. Um, and this is so, it, ironically, even though it's about writers, so far away from me that I, I it's interesting that, that it seems that we all have this sense of, the, of just very clear, this is, this is not me. And so that gives you freedom to, to write uh, this, this character and to sort of mess around with them. Uh, I, I, I was thinking, you know, with your things. Um, when I, I was very, very young, I used to write a diary, as we all do, my, my have done. And I had two brothers, you know, who were so, you know, all, all the time trying to read my diary and know about <laughs> me, typically. And uh, so I started to write in metaphors, in a way, very stupid metaphors, very basic metaphors, and writing stories that, you know, this uh, meant the boy I liked, and that was the other friend. And I, I did all these things, you know, so they couldn't find out, actually, uh, anything <laughs> when they read my diary. And I feel that this is what I've been, I have been doing in all my, as a writer, too. And 
there mm. in all my books. Writing in code in a sense. Uh, yeah, I mm. mean, from the first day, you know, book one, I'm there. It's me fully. Mm. Every single thing which is there is me. Mm. But you will have to be very... Yes. And know okay. me a lot to find out exactly what is the connection and what, and how it gets to me because I can say just the opposite, mm. and that I know it comes from something my my own feeling of anything of anger of envy or uh, sadness or and it can come out in completely a different way but I know it's me you know yeah okay you know I I want to ask you I wondered if the name of the character Vera. Seagal is come is related to the idea of Vera icon, the real image, the true image. No, no, no. Okay, that was just me. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's it's my grand grandmother's name. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's her yeah, name. Yeah. So it comes yeah. from there. Okay. That's so. Uh, so um, let's um, talk about the sort of meta aspect in in your novel, Carla, and similarly to John's, that um, there's a true, you know, there's a real sort of world out, outside it, and it's not very far from the novel. And I'm wondering if, because uh, you know, it deals with very serious territory, um, you know, the the recent history um, in Chile with the um, Pinochet dictatorship. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if having a you know real character allowed you a certain sort of ver veracity, like a, a real realness, and that's perhaps, that's why it had to be sort of connected to a real character. Uh, well, none of the characters are real, except they are all me. Okay. But but we're based but, on yeah, based on based, based on and we, but we she's know so that. far away yeah. because mm -hmm. she's uh, she's my much older, you know, than even my character. That my character is older than me. Uh, no, I, I mean, but it allowed me, as I was telling at the beginning, uh, to, to 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 tell the story about Chile, about my family, and there is many things that I, as I said, I couldn't ask, you know, because I, because it was too late to ask, which I reconstructed based in things I started to build up. For instance, there is a scene, uh, Vera Sigal, uh, at one point, she's taken into jail, right, during the Pinochet uh, regime, and uh, she's taken to jail, she, she disappears, and she stays with three women in, in this jail, in this room, and, uh, and there is something that happens there, uh, which I'm not going to say. But this is very, I mean, it's very moving for me because that wasn't part of the book. She wasn't going to go to jail at all. But when I was writing that book, I got a phone call from a woman, you know, an old woman. And, he, and she said, hey, you are Carla Gelfman. Yes, you know, I was your, your, with your mom in jail those three weeks she disappeared. And we were three women, we were there. And uh, she told me lots of things about those weeks that I never could asked my mother because I was 17 and she died. And uh, so I felt I had to put it in the book yeah. mm -hmm. because it came at that moment and Vera was my mother, was my grandmother, was Clarice Spector, it was me. And suddenly this thing came, you know? And so it, I had to put that there. And that's how the history, you know, just room went into the, in, into yeah. the novel in a way which is very alive, I think. Yes, okay, thank you. That's really fascinating. Um, a question for um, Andrew. Um, your, your novels are hilarious. It's just, it's just sort of um, we have laugh both out loud. Ridiculous novels. Yeah, ours are <laughs> absurd, ridiculous. Um, yours is laugh out loud funny, and I'm wondering if um, 
the humour is sort of um, necessary for a certain kind of distance. I'm, I'm wondering if perhaps you felt like a comedian who has to use themselves as fodder. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I struggled with the book. He wasn't going to be a writer at all. It wasn't going to be a, a funny novel. It was going to be a completely different kind of book. Oh. And in fact, his last name was going to be Swift. Thank God. Really? Oh. Man, dodged a bullet there. Um, and I couldn't feel sorry for my character because he was, he was enough like me that I had no pity for him. And I couldn't write the book because I was like, who cares about this guy, you know? Everything seems like it's going perfectly fine. And I, my revelation was swimming one day in the San Francisco Bay. I was desperate to figure out how to crack this book. And I thought if I just make fun of him, that it would, um, that would make sense mm. if I didn't have pity for him. Okay. And um, so then I was like, well, making fun of myself is, is easy. Mm. Um, and it was strangely the only way to get into having some emotional attachment to him. And then I really fell in love with him because he wasn't me anymore. I know that sounds, makes me sound so pathetic, but I think it's often true that, you know, um, it's why we write fiction and not autobiography or nonfiction. We're trying to do things through mirrors. Um, and I think that that was the effect. I've never written comedy before. Huh. No, hmm. but... Okay. I thought there was a law against that, too. <laughs> but Clearly not. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, on that note, I think it might be time to um, turn to the audience and see if anyone would like to ask questions. There are a couple of roving mics. Um, so um, put up your hand if you'd like to ask There's a question. Somebody will come to you. So ma make sure it's, uh, your questions are short and questiony. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Yes, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Um, Andrew, something you said reminded me of a book that came out a few years ago called Mortification, Writers' Stories of Public Shame. Yeah. Uh, fantastic collection of essays, um, which I highly recommend if you want to feel better about yourself. Um, you tantalisingly dropped a hint that you had a similar story about the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you at a writers' festival, and I wondered if you would be able to share it and if the other panellists also oh, have anecdotes to share. How dare you, madam? <laughs> <laughs> I, there are so many. I can say my embarrassing New Zealand story that happened Already? the other day. Already? Yeah. Um, <laughs> just before coming to the festival, I went to Wahiki Island, um, and I was, um, I was out the beach, and there was a rainstorm, and so everyone on the beach went under a palm tree, and um, the man there, um, we were talking. I said why I was here, and he asked the name of my book, and I, he, I was overjoyed to hear him say um, that he had just finished reading my book. You know, that I had traveled to the other side of the world and I was on this beach and here was someone who had just read my book. And he said, and I didn't like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and you don't look anything like your author photo. <laughs> and it was a nude beach. <laughs> no. <laughs> so... Thank you, Auckland. Okay. <laughs> Hilarious. Should we continue with this yeah. uh, oh, theme of embarrassing I, I things? Have, I have yeah. a mortification. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, have I, have a, I have a mortification one. Um, it was a few years ago, um, and I was uh, one of my my young people's books, Barnaby Brockett, had been shortlisted for this prize called the Little Rebels Award in England, and it was about like characters that are rebellious. And anyway, I was at the ceremony, and there was a stage 
but everybody th was just standing, you know, so there was a couple hundred people all standing. And I was talking to somebody and I heard them say, would the authors come to the front? So I came up and there was a row of like, you know, there was five of us and five seats and I came up on the stage and sat there. And I noticed that the, um, the other people were um, on the stage, the, uh, were, they were kind of looking at me like, weird expressions on their faces, and I didn't know why. And anyway, so the speech was started, and somebody got up to do the, um, you know, to talk about the award or whatever. And then I was looking down, and I realized in the front row of the standing area, um, there was the four other authors who were shortlisted, <laughs> who were, were all, I think, basically on their first book. And, uh, you know, I was on my 10th or 11th, and it suddenly dawned on me that I've just marched up onto the stage because, because obviously I've won, you know. <laughs> oh. And I've sat down here, and I thought, oh, crap. And, um, and I thought, how do I get out of this? How do I get off this stage and down there? And they were staring at me, the people on the stage were staring at me, and, and then I didn't win. Oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> the lady came up and won from the, from the stage, and I just sat there and I swam. And the minute she left the stage, I just, <laughs> I just ran for it. I just ran for it. Oh, man. I'm absolutely oh mortified. <laughs> no. so. I can't compete. Not after that, I can't, I can't think compete. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> you to. The, another question. Yeah. I know I can't compete. I, I've never had anything that terrible happen. No. I did, I did once do a thing with black eyes um, after I'd fallen, and, and I was persuaded to still go on stage with black eyes. It was dreadful. That's probably the most embarrassing thing. Anyway, there must be another question out there. I can't, I can't really see. It's a bit like, um, like sort of... I don't see hands. I don't see any hands up. Yes? Ah, wait, do you wait, for, the wait for the mic to come. Yeah. This morning, I heard Patrick DeWitt um, talk about his writing process, and he talked about that at the point where the characters of the book sort of took over him, if you like, that um, he felt as if he was um, almost transcribing or dictating uh, the person or the character that he had adopted, and that's when he sort of knew that he was running with something that he could adopt, because he was also talking about a loss of a book uh, that he'd spent five months on that he said as he'd become an older, more confident writer, he had the ability to drop it um, effectively. And I just wondered if you as writers have a similar experience or if that process of creating the book is different for all of you or is, are there commonalities or sort of relationship sort of commonalities in how you all write? Who's going to take I that? could say something Question. which is related to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I think all, all, all writers, we have our own ways, you know, I suppose. Uh, but I would say we will all agree with him. I mean, uh, there is a point that definitely, I mean, the, the character has to be free. But how these start, I remember to read uh, an essay by Virginia Woolf, and she would say that the characters will come like people uh, passing through imaginative imaginary people passing through her mind or her eyes. And suddenly she, 
one of them will catch her side and she will run, you know, and get whatever she could, a piece of hair, a piece of clothes, whatever she could get. And she would sort of hold it. And that would be the sort of seed for a character. But then she will have to find again, uh, wait for the same character to go again to sort of be able to grow it. And uh, I feel very, very much that, you know. I mean, I the characters, they, they are always there. They are, they are you, but they are there. And you have to sort of grasp them and, 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 and build them with very little things. Mm -hmm. And uh, to get to know them with these very few materials uh, that you get to know them. I never do a biography of them, but I do have to have these little things which are meaningful and, and they constitute someone, you know? Yes, right. Yes, I, I've had that experience too. And, um, and the character of Janice um, sort of fell into my lap. And I, I was sort of... This thing of like working on a character doesn't really work for me. That the, the characters are like there um, or not. And so Janice um, fell into my lap one day in uh, Honolulu, where we lived ten years. And I was reading the um, New York Review of Books, and there was a letter complaining about a bad review. And the letter was addressed to the person saying, you know, thank you so and so for reviewing my book um, and pointing out its flaws. I don't know how to thank you. I'll just never do that again. And I, you know, thank you for pointing out all my failings. I know I'm really terrible as a writer. And I would never have known that unless you'd told me. So there is Janice, like, in my lap. And I, 10 years later, I wrote, wrote the book. Yeah. I don't know. I think Patrick DeWitt is a very tall Canadian liar. <laughs> Liar. That is a great book, The French Exit. It's really, uh, it's his best book. Um, what makes sense to me about what he said is the, is the months of work on something and having to abandon it when you realize the book is going some other way. And often for me, there's a gap where I don't know, where it's just free fall. And then I get to some, hopefully, it's for large space of writing the book where it feels like freedom and, I, and, 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 and e easy for, for as hard as writing is, you know? Like this, when I made it a comedy, eventually it became um, fluid, but it was a long time. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't imagine abandoning one, to be honest. I feel, um, I feel it's the job is to, when you get to those tough moments, to figure it out. I related to what you were saying earlier, Andrew, about when you were swimming and then just a little small moment that makes the book for you, that you, you realize where you've gone wrong and how to fix it. And um, I like that. I find that comes in the writing, you know, that moment, that day where maybe it's just a scene or a, it could be a line of dialogue or something, but it suddenly tells you what your novel was about yeah. that you didn't realize before. I often say, though, that I often think that the novel is right there at the back of your head and that you're, you're digging your way to it. It's all up there. Um, but it's a really exciting and gratifying moment when that happens, I think. There's, um, Be fine. We have one or two, one more minute. No, time for one more quick question. Is there someone who wants to ask a question? That's in the third um, row here. Yes. Sure. Um, Tanakwe, um, Mr. Boyne, last night I was very moved um, by your story at the gala and I couldn't help but wonder how much apart from the first third which we now hear something inspired by your life whether the second two thirds were also fueled by maybe a recent that recent 
uh, breakup and betrayal? And it's a very personal question, uh, but no. I, I just thank you so much for being so authentic on the night. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, it, they were actually two separate incidents, two different people. Um, but the second and third part of the book, no, it's um, it's a complete invention. I just, I mean, I started with one idea and one person and built from that. But the rest of the book is uh, just a figment of my imagination. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.